Amen. Go ahead and have a seat. Another special opportunity we have today is I get to introduce to you a guest. Uh, before we dismiss the kids, I want to have them a chance to you know, meet Dean. Uh, Dean Sewell, would you kind of join me? Kind of, would you definitely join me on the platform? Not kind of, but really, for real. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, Dean is our uh, candidate for the position of Associate Pastor of Family Ministries here at Faith Covenant Church. And I am excited to introduce him to you today. He is here with his wife, Abby, and daughter, Lydia. They're joining us as well. So we encourage you to uh, take a few minutes after the service and greet them. But don't go too long because we're going to have a congregational meeting where we're going to choose whether or not to hire Dean uh, after the service. So no pressure. Okay? I'm praying nope. that it's my chosen Sunday. Right, right? Yeah, exactly. So, there you go. Yeah. Now, you guys hail from... Uh, well, I'm originally from Eatonville, Washington, but we came here uh, from San Diego area. Awesome. Well, we are glad that you're here, and I just want to pray uh, God's blessing over our kids as we dismiss them so we can go ahead and send you guys out, meet your leaders in the back, and let's just ask God to bless Dean as he brings God's word to us this morning. God, thank you for who you are in our lives, that you weave together our paths and our stories in ways that uh, create a blessing, uh, in ways that are uh, such a, a, a joyful um, thing to celebrate together. So we thank you for not only our kids, uh, and we pray that you bless them in their time of kids' worship today, but we pray for Dean, and that as he brings the message that you've put on his heart to share with us, that his words would become your words, and we would all go away today knowing that we have heard from the living God, and because of that, we will be forever changed. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Break Amen. leg. Well, good morning, Faith Covenant Church. Uh, it's such a joy to be with, here, with you here this morning, especially an amazing Sunday like Chosen Sunday. Thank you so much for your generosity this weekend, for taking the time to get to know me and my family, especially for those of you who were here yesterday. It was such a great time asking each other questions. I'm just curious, though, has anybody ever been asked a question that you just completely did not know how to answer, completely stumped you so bad that you couldn't even say, I don't know. You just stared blankly. Well, that happened to me the first time that I met my father-in-law. <clears throat> his, his question to me was whether or not he should chop off my head. Maybe I should give you some context. Um, First of all, my father-in-law is an amazing guy. He's so kind and generous. He's a faithful disciple of Jesus. He loves and serves his church and family. And he's also a retired judge. And I, and I asked him once how many times he used a gavel in court. He says, in 20 years, never. In his mind, if he had to use the gavel, that meant the entire courtroom was out of his control. It was a lost cause. So he kept things tight and in order. So this is the kind of presence he can command when he wants to. And when he got bored in retirement, he decided to become a king at medieval times. I don't know if you've ever seen medieval times. They have a few of them around the country. It's a medieval-style tournament show with real weapons and axes and swords, and it's all choreographed. But there are also real ambulances on standby, of course, if anybody, if anybody misses 
because sometimes they don't quite hit just right. Uh, they give you a massive chunk of chicken for dinner. They give you a goblet to drink out of. It's an experience. It's a whole thing. You should go sometime. My father-in-law played the part of the king that got to preside over this whole show, this tournament, for a few years. So eight years ago, almost to the day, when Abby told me about this show her dad was doing, I said, it would be so fun to go see it. And she said, well, that means you'll have to meet my dad. Sure! not realizing I'm going to be meeting him as the king for the first time. And as soon as you come into the building, the first thing you do is you take a picture with the king. I knew that was going to be the moment I met him, so eventually I decided I need to do some personal coaching on my handshake. You know, I I need to give myself a little pep talk. Not too firm. Don't go overboard, Dean. Don't just give him the fingers because that's going to be weird. A couple seconds maximum, then you release. I didn't really do much practice, though, for my face. So here's the picture that was taken after I had just met him. Okay, I, I blocked myself out. First of all, Abby's dad, <laughs> Abby's dad is looking very regal and kind of like Sean Connery in a somewhat intimidating way. And then Abby's mom's there and the Abby all smiling. Okay, now here's me. I'm okay. I'm fine. Everything is fine. I'm fine. I think I'm even subconsciously pulling my arm away from Abby there a little bit. Like, I I just, you know, was trying to make clear, no touching, no touching. But it's not over, okay? After this room, you step into a big hall where everyone gathers before the show, and you can get drinks or souvenirs, but the king also comes out, and he starts doing knighting ceremonies for different people. So we see a few of these, and eventually, my name gets called, and I swallow very hard. And with his very real and very sharp Excalibur sword above my head as I come forward and I kneel before the king, he asks, now is this a knighting or a beheading? (laughs) Should I cry? Should I laugh? Should I run away? Should I curl into a ball? I'm pretty sure I just put on that same same face of pure confidence. And I waited for Abby to answer in my place and say it was a knighting because I didn't really feel like I got a vote in that moment. But don't worry, my relationship with my father-in-law is great. He's wonderful. Last time we hung out, he didn't even bring his sword. Um, Have you ever been asked a question, though, that made you freeze? Maybe not about your head getting cut off. I hope not. But you just couldn't say anything at all. Maybe you were scared. Maybe you were embarrassed. Maybe you were angry. Maybe you were confused. In the Gospels, Jesus asks a lot of questions. Sometimes they are in response to questions that are asked of him. But quite often the questions Jesus asks are more a matter of challenging us to see things differently instead of Jesus somehow needing to get information. They're questions like, if you love only those who love you, how are you different than anyone else? Why do you break the command of God for the sake of your tradition? What is the kingdom of God like? In John chapter 3, Jesus is having a conversation with a man named Nicodemus. He's a very educated man. And the conversation is about what it takes to see the kingdom of God. And he asks Nicodemus at one point, you are a respected Jewish teacher and yet you don't understand these things? Which is a very unsettling thing to be asked for someone so educated and respected. How is he supposed to respond? And actually, he doesn't respond. He doesn't say anything after this at this point in John John chapter 3. It's like if you were talking to Bill Gates about software and he got confused. What? What are you you talking about? Bill, 
Come on, I thought you knew about computers. Aren't you a computer guy, Bill? Come on. Probably doesn't feel so good. But all, all of this starts because Nicodemus comes seeking out Jesus with curiosity, but he's also hoping to get some insight, I think. So as Jesus is talking and he's asking Jesus a lot of questions, they're not bad questions that he, that he begins asking of Jesus and the things he's saying. In fact, they're pretty reasonable questions. And I think we'd all ask the same ones, too, if we were in his place. If we're honest, we have at least, at times, identified with Nicodemus's understanding, probably, of spirituality and faith and what it's really all about. But it often takes spending a lot of time at Jesus' feet, asking the wrong questions, maybe over and over again, so that Jesus can patiently move us towards the right ones. We aren't given all the answers. Faith is still faith. And it's not simply an intellectual conversation that Jesus is having. He is pointing Nicodemus, all of us, to what real transformation looks like. Before we look at chapter 3, let's go back and look at chapter 2, because it's important to see the context of Nicodemus' encounter with Jesus. Right at the end of chapter 2, it says, Now, while he was in Jerusalem at the Passover festival, many people saw the signs he was performing and believed in his name. But Jesus would not entrust himself to them, for he knew all people. He did not need any testimony about mankind, for he knew what was in each person. In other words, Jesus knows that people have been coming to him, not always out of an authentic desire to know him for who he is, but because they saw miracles and they thought they were pretty cool, right? Gandalf shows up to town, and what happens? All the hobbits roll in because fireworks, right? Jesus is here, and we want to see some cool stuff. They saw an opportunity to make someone who could instantly heal people be their king, who could do all of these crazy things. That could be the guy. He could be the Messiah. He's the one we're waiting for. And starting in John 3, verse 1, it says, Now there was a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the signs you are doing if God were not with him. Jesus replied, Very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. It might look like Jesus dodges what Nicodemus says with his response. Right? It's, it's like he's, he's talking about something completely different, but we miss something in English that's in the Greek text, but it's subtle. Jesus mirrors a phrase that Nicodemus uses in his response. The short two-word phrase, uh, aeon me, in Nicodemus' question, is translated in many versions as simply, if. No one could perform the signs you are doing if God were not with him. It's the same phrase translated as unless in Jesus' response, unless you are born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. So in what Jesus says and in what Nicodemus says, there's this declaration that something is impossible. Nicodemus says performing these signs are impossible if God were not with Jesus. True, but Jesus says also something impossible, and he comes back with something that isn't even on Nicodemus' radar. He says, it is impossible to see the kingdom of God unless you are born again. We sang about that kingdom this morning. Jesus is not ignoring Nicodemus' question. If you've ever felt like God ignored a question you've had, I assure you, he hasn't ignored you, even when our lives seem filled to the brink with pain. But Jesus might be showing you a different question to ask. 
Here, Jesus meets Nicodemus and turns him towards a different reality. Even if it's a little bit difficult for Nicodemus to figure out how he's supposed to turn. One that isn't just about getting some, someone with miracles shooting out of their fingertips to wipe out the Roman overlords they hate so much. It's also not a shot in the arm of religious adrenaline to help Nicodemus be more accomplished at being religious. Maybe that's what he was hoping for. But Jesus is telling Nicodemus the miraculous signs that have drawn him to meet with Jesus in the dark of night are not the point. He says there is something else these signs are pointing him towards that he has yet to even realize or grasp. Something no less miraculous, but just as true. But poor, confused Nicodemus. Here's where it starts to go off the rails. How can someone be born when they are old? Nicodemus asked. Surely they cannot enter enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born. You're right. No, they can't. Please don't go home and try it. Maybe this verse should come with a massive disclaimer just in case, right? I mean, we have cups that say hot, right? I don't know. But this begins in the verses that follow one of the most significant passages in Scripture. It brings us deeper into this back-and-forth conversation where Nicodemus just continues to get more confused, finally being asked by Jesus in verse 10, do you not understand these things? And then to a statement that Jesus makes in verse 16, what many people have turned to as a very concise description of the gospel. I'm sure many of you are familiar with it. You've probably memorized it. Knowing that verse has brought many of us great comfort and hope, We take the Scripture seriously, as we should, declaring that we do believe in Jesus and in God's love for us. We say with confidence that we are, in fact, born again. We've grown very familiar with this Scripture over the years. Anybody grown familiar with that Scripture over the years? Learning from it, studying it, and learning more about God's Word is certainly not a bad thing. But yet there is a danger here because we have perhaps such a familiarity with this. Familiarity, the kind that assumes it knows something, can be dangerous. A familiarity that is not unlike Jesus' family and hometown that was a little unsure he was really the Son of God. Don't we know this guy? I mean, we've been around him for a while. Don't we know him? Or Nicodemus' familiarity with the Scriptures that he'd grown up with, what we now call the Old Testament. Nicodemus knew this front to back. And yet here he is standing before Jesus, and he's dumbfounded. Many of us have grown up hearing John 3 so much, and so we say, yeah, that's, that's what I believe, that's what I memorize, that's the church I go to, that's my faith, I get it, yeah, that's great. But we run the risk of being so good at reciting Scripture, we can lose a sense of what a seemingly impossible and miraculous thing we're declaring to be true. Not just in general, but also in our own life, in our own story of redemption. It's not something we could have ever done. It was never about me. It was all God. The whole process, the whole thing was God. It was not me. In order to see the kingdom of God, to enter the kingdom of God, the only way, Jesus says, is to be born again. When we read this, we stand outside of the story, right? We're looking at poor, confused Nicodemus, we wonder, well, what, what went wrong? Why didn't he understand? But if we're honest, our response is probably the same as Nicodemus's. If we were in his shoes and in his place, 
How are these things possible, Jesus? How? What are you talking about? Isn't being a Christian just having some generally good behavior, trying to be a good moral, ethical person? Isn't it just a good record of church attendance? So Jesus is in response asking each of us the same question he asks Nicodemus. Do you not understand these things? We could look at this question to us as a reprimand, or we can hear it as Jesus with compassion, asking those that he loves, do you not understand these things? When it looks impossible, do you not understand these things? When you think you've worked hard enough to earn some points with God, and it still all falls apart, do you not understand these things? When you read a scripture for the hundredth time and suddenly realize it's speaking right at you and you have no idea what to do, do you not understand these things? When it feels like you'll never be able to overcome something that has kept you captive for years, a lie that keeps creeping in and trying to tell you who you are, do you not understand these things? When you'd rather judge the world around you instead of seeking how you can show love and compassion, do you not understand these things? You must be born all over again. But let's return to where Nicodemus starts to go sideways and off the rails in this discussion. Nicodemus and other Pharisees and teachers of the law, they had an idea in mind of what entering the kingdom of God would be like. And it was certainly possible. They already had an idea of how religious you ought to be, how dedicated to obeying the law you had to be, how many times you needed to visit the temple, the kinds of sacrifices you need to make. For goodness sake, they could tithe like nobody's business. Raise your hand if anybody brought in some like mint or dill this morning for the offering. Anybody? Anybody? Okay, because that's what they would do. They would bring in their spices for goodness sake. Right? They were so good at it. Certainly stay away from those Gentiles. Oh, those people are filthy. How fervently you needed to express your belief in God was all part of it. And surely that would earn you a spot in the kingdom of God. And they could be in with God. They'd be right in the middle of God's will and rule and reign. The impossible part in Nicodemus' mind was not entering the kingdom. That seemed possible if you did all the right things. They felt like they had a pretty good system. Difficult, sure. But you can work for it. You can work hard enough, you can pull yourself up, you can do it, but being born again, now that sounds like a whole lot of nonsense. Go back in your mother's womb? I mean, Nicodemus probably thinks Jesus has a really weird imagination or just doesn't understand math. But once again, this, this is actually okay. Sometimes we have to sit at Jesus' feet and ask the wrong questions as Jesus asks us questions of his own. We've probably all lived out a story just like Nicodemus, either feeling proud of ourselves for doing it all just right, or like we're never good enough. We've never been good enough, we're never going to be good enough, we're never going to measure up because there's always something that seems like falling apart, something we're doing wrong. But Jesus asks us, do you not understand these things? Not to ridicule us for our confusion, but to teach us. So this is how Jesus responds to Nicodemus in verse 5. Jesus answered, Very truly I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and the Spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, and the Spirit gives birth to Spirit. When Jesus says, You must be born again, 
he obviously doesn't mean the way Nicodemus misunderstands him. He isn't talking about a physical birth all over again, thank goodness. But if you were hoping Jesus would clarify things, it seems like he muddies the water even more when he says in verse 7, you should not be surprised at my saying you must be born again. Oh, really, Jesus, I shouldn't. I should know what you're talking about. He says the wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. Now, what we miss here again in English is that in Greek, the same word is translated as both spirit and wind. It's the word pneuma. It can mean either spirit or wind or breath. What Jesus is saying is that this process of being born again and what it, what it means not physically, not something we do on our own, but by the Spirit of God, it's exactly like the wind. It is exactly like knowing something's happening, clearly something's happening, but being totally unable to control it. Right? When you look outside and there's a windstorm and you see that branch and you know it's a dead branch and you see it really moving around, something's happening, but you can't control it and you better just hunker down and hope it doesn't break into your window. Right? Jesus is saying the wind is here and it's happening. You can see it, but you can't control it. There's no getting our heads around this to try and figure it all out and understand it. It's just how God's Spirit works. It's just what the kingdom of God is like. If it fit into your own understanding and you could control the whole process, Jesus is saying to Nicodemus, well, then it would be your kingdom, Nicodemus, and not my kingdom, not God's kingdom. But that still is probably going to leave us scratching our heads a little bit. What does Jesus mean? Are we only left with it's a mystery? When I was in college, my senior year, I had one month left, and my roommate got in a car wreck. And in this car wreck, he had no injuries except one, one point on his head. From that one point, he woke up after months of being in a coma. Everything about his life changed. When he came out of this coma, his body was completely uncoordinated. It was like all the pathways in his brain that had been there before, all the things, the usual ways his brain would work to make things do what they were supposed to do, to make his body move, it was all gone. He had to relearn everything, like balance, walk, talk, hold a pencil, drive a car, run, tell a joke. It took him months, even years, before he had regained those functions in his body. It was a process that required him to completely rely on others around him, his family, his doctors, to be okay with being in a position that probably felt embarrassing at times, something you should be able to do, but you just can't. I imagine it was very much like being born all over again. Nicodemus is coming to Jesus as though everything he already knows how to do, all the ways he knows how to be religious, will only need a few pointers, a few tweaks here or there, and he's hoping Jesus can help him with that. Like the next thing he needs is just more knowledge. Maybe he needs a New Year's resolution. He can be a little bit better at being religious. He's got all the basic mechanics down. He just kind of needs to work on his jump shot a little bit. And he'll be fine. And Jesus, in effect, says you need to unlearn and then relearn everything. And for somebody so educated, that is a very unsettling thing to hear. See, for my roommate, though, he had to relearn the same basic functions. The same stuff that he had always done, that's what he was relearning. But here, Jesus is calling us into something brand new. 
to learn things we never knew we needed, to walk and talk and live in a way that is foreign to the way the world works. We're learning to love things that we may have completely rejected before. And all our old ways of thinking and living and our old allegiances are all gone. Being born again means entering God's kingdom like a baby, without any sense of pride, but simply a very real awareness of your need. Being born again also means, as Jesus says in Matthew 16, if any wish to come after me, let them deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. So this new life, being born again, always comes as the old things pass away. As it says in Romans 10.9, we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in our hearts that God raised him from the dead. Making this claim that Jesus is Lord is not a secret password into a special religious club called church. To make this claim about Jesus is a step of faith. That means we are accepting Jesus' right to make an identity claim on our life, an identity claim that also means we belong to a family called the church. I'm sure many of you in this room have had an experience where after knowing things about Jesus for a long time, or maybe only a short time, maybe you just heard about Jesus, and all of a sudden, something changed. Maybe you still can't fully explain it, about how it felt, but maybe you just knew that God loved you way more than you deserved, and that was enough. And you were ready to follow him with your life. I had this happen in my own life when I was in middle school. See, I grew up attending church. I knew plenty of verses. I had memorized a lot from John chapter 3. But that's all that it had been. And my whole world really centered around my friends. I lived for their approval for hanging out with them, for doing whatever they were doing, liking whatever they liked. And I remember on one particular day, a friend of mine did something really mean. And all of a sudden, something just clicked inside me. Like I knew in a moment how empty it was to put my hope and identity in other people. It didn't feel nice, but it was good. And on that day, I chose to follow Jesus because Jesus reached me first with a whole lot of ups and downs and problems and growing pains since then. But I knew that who I was, without the words necessarily to say so, I was God's beloved child. Now, I've learned a few things, of course, about telling my story, about sharing what it was that God did in my life, because when it, when it first happens, or maybe even years down the line, you can be really excited about it. Right? And you want to you go tell someone, hi, my name's Dean. I'm born again. Are you born again? I'm born again. How's it going? Is anybody else born again? And we just want to keep shouting out and tell the whole world. But, but of course, th- there's a very real sense in which if we just say that phrase over and over again, people are probably going to be about as confused as Nicodemus was. And even more so, because they don't even have the context of John chapter 3. All they hear us screaming is born again, and they're like, my gosh, those Christians have weird conversion rituals. What is he talking about? Well, there's an author and monk by the name of Thomas Merton, and he lived in the mid-20th century. He describes this same transformation, though. That's really what this is all about, a transformation. And he describes it with the journey of going from what he calls the false self to the true self. This is what he says, All sin starts from the assumption that my false self 
is the fundamental reality of life to which everything else in the universe is ordered. Thus, I use up my life in the desire for pleasure and the thirst for experiences, for power, honor, knowledge, love, to clothe this false self and construct its nothingness into something objectively real. If you need to pick up the pieces of your mind here for a minute, that's okay. It's a little bit out there. But I know it seems a little heady, but what's he, what he's talking about is that we as humans all learn to wear a mask. In some way or another, we learn to wear a mask. Not in a way where we intentionally try to deceive others or ourselves. Maybe that's part of it, but we're often unaware of wearing this mask. We don't know we're doing it because we just don't know anything else. And this false self is a way of thinking, a way of living that is governed by fear, anger, suspicion of others, greed, selfishness, a desire for revenge. It's all about propping up this very self-centered ego, and it can manifest itself in many ways. So someone living out of the false self might not appear as fearful or angry or spiteful. Depending on the circumstances, they might seem successful, powerful, talented, even religious, like Nicodemus. Why do we do this as humans? Why is this the condition of every person who's ever lived? Well, our, our false self can often be connected with places where we feel ashamed. We feel unsafe. We feel attacked. And maybe we've never even been able to admit that to anybody else, but our false self then starts to justify its existence. Often because it says, that's the only way we're going to be able to live, only way we're going to be able to survive, to get ahead in life to be successful, to be loved, to be good enough, to be accepted and even to be accepted by God. This is what I've got to do. These are the very convincing lies that Nicodemus has been believing his whole life, not just in general, but even in the way he has been reading the scriptures. And Jesus is telling him he needs to be born all over again. But the false self is our way of trying to avoid deeper pain. The arguments from the false self, they're loud, they're convincing. This is why Nicodemus is having such a hard time letting go. See, the false self is the part of us that needs to be stripped away in order for us to receive the love and redemption that God has for us on the other side of being born again. So denying the false self exists and therefore denying we need to be born again is problem number one. You have to first admit that we, like all humans, are in the same boat. It doesn't matter how hard we've tried. We need more than just a few, or even a lot, of religious pointers and ethical rules. We need a transformation that only the love of God can bring. And the gospel transforms us not because we memorize a certain set of religious things to repeat. It's not about stopping certain things and then starting other things. We're transformed because the Holy Spirit, the power of the Holy Spirit that raised Jesus from the grave, our false self can finally be set aside so we can be exactly who God created us to be. There is no entering the kingdom of God with our proud heads held high that we deserve it. There's no bragging that God is lucky to have us on his team. Being born again means to surrender to the grace of God who loves you more than you could ever imagine. That is the only way to follow Jesus. And the real question then is, if we must be born again, what are we growing up to be? What are we growing into? This is where I think the real mystery lies. 
right? What are we, what are we supposed to be growing up into? We're, we're obviously not just supposed to stay a little, you know, a baby the rest of our life in terms of our, our growth in Jesus. But this is where the real shocker is, in a verse that we have all memorized and known by heart. You ever received those emails before telling you you just inherited $10 million? All you need to do is give your bank account and you'll get $10 million, right? No, it's, it's too good to be true. We know it's too good to be true. We delete it. We move on. But isn't that almost how we should react when we read what Jesus says in verse 16? For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. But it's not a scam. There's no nefarious tent on the other side of a computer, somebody just waiting for you to type in that bank account number. What sounds like it's far too good to be true is for real. The very thing Nicodemus doesn't understand about being born again is certainly a mystery. I believe, though, an even greater mystery. The great mystery is the never-ending love of God. Some translations have verse 16 as saying, this is the way that God loved the world. This is how God did it. How? How could God love us this much? How are these things possible Do you not understand these things? What sounds like a fantasy that God would love us so much that he would take on human flesh and suffer and die on our behalf so that he could rise again to new life, defeat death, this is the very reason we are born again. Do we understand these things? It is the mystery of God's never-ending love that we grow up into over and over again. It doesn't happen once and then we're done. Because from everything the world has told us, of course, Somewhere deep down we believe we have to do something really special to be able to earn God's love. Oh, there's this thing out there called God's love? Great. I can probably do a lot of cool things and then God will love me. But when we are born all over again, when we're born all over again, we learn over and over again that God's love is not a fairy tale. God's love defines who we are. It's what John also says in chapter 1, verses 12 and 13, that to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision, or a husband's will, but born of God. To be born again means that the old ways that we defined ourselves... To gauge our worth and value, whether or not we're capable of being loved and loving others, all of that is just gone. We don't just believe in God's love like it's only a fact on a piece of paper. To be born again is to experience the love of God so powerfully by His Spirit being with us that who we are is God's beloved children. Not just that God's love is this thing that I kind of get to receive, but who we are is God's beloved children. Thomas Merton also says this, love is my true identity. Selflessness is my true self. Love is my true character. Love is my name. When we truly believe the gospel that Jesus is Lord, what changes is that we know deep down that we both need compassion and that God is ready and willing to give it. We don't have to pretend anymore we don't need compassion on a daily basis. And as children of God, we are called to be imitators of God. 
Verse 16 reminds us God loves not just us, God loves the world. God loves the world out there. God loves your neighbors around you. God loves all the people you don't like. That's what Chosen Sunday is all about, right? God loves more than just you and your family and your friends. See, growing up into the love of God means that instead of our prideful attitude that pats us on the back and judges others, we learn an attitude of humility that puts others first. Instead of a focus on how we can get more for ourselves, we learn an attitude of serving. Instead of living with our fists clenched around our money, holding back our time and resources, we learn the art of generosity. This is what the disciples encountered in Jesus' presence and at his feet time and again, almost always being confused, by the way, by how Jesus operated and what he did and where he went, especially the people he hung out with. Being born again and therefore the Christian life as a whole of being a child in God's kingdom might sound overwhelming, right? Like it's one awkward adventure after another or something. Unlearning everything we thought about reality, it's a little intimidating maybe. But I believe Jesus means this image of new birth as a comfort to us. Jesus knows the process of learning to live into our identity as God's children, both entering God's kingdom and then also being agents of God's kingdom. It's not easy, and it's the journey of a lifetime. Jesus uses this image of birth because he's reminding us no baby is born coordinated. No one is playing basketball in swaddling clothes. It just doesn't happen. Everyone grows up. Being born and growing up all over again, that's, it's, sometimes it's awkward, sometimes it's painful, and that's okay because we have God's Spirit with us all along the way. Trusting in God is learned. Relying on God's Spirit is learned. Desiring to be in God's presence instead of thinking God is trying to thwart our joy, that's learned. To love others we really don't like is learned. Listening to God's leading in our life is learned. I'm going to invite the worship team to come up as I pray. But wherever we are in our journey with Jesus, I encourage you, especially in this season of the church known as Lent, we take an opportunity to examine what God is doing in us and in our life. And this week, let's, let's sit at Jesus' feet and let's be all the more at ease. Let's learn to be at ease asking Jesus questions even if we're asking Jesus the wrong ones. Because Jesus can handle it. But let's also be at ease with whatever new questions Jesus is asking of us. Let's pray. God, we thank you that sometimes your word challenges us and pushes us. In fact, it, it quite often does if we're open and we're ready and we're willing. And so this morning, God, we ask that your spirit would continue to open our hearts. For many of us here in this room, we've had that experience, that moment maybe in our life where we realize that your love was so powerful and so overwhelming and so present. And we were, as your word says, we were born all over again. But Jesus, wherever we may be at, there, there may be growing pains right now in the room. And so, God, I pray for those who are struggling, for those who don't know a way forward, who don't know how to be able to respond to that situation or person in their life right now. God, I pray that you would help all of us, wherever we are on our journey, to learn to lean on your love, 
to learn to ask questions, even the wrong ones, and then to hear the questions you are asking of us. In your name we pray. Amen.